Hello and welcome to the Adapt Podcast, the podcast about how society adapts to the growing challenges of the world. My name is Harish Mergason, and I am a rising senior at Dublin Jerome High School in Dublin, Ohio. Now, today I have the honor to be joined by Mr. Kevin Hikes. Mr. Hikes is an accomplished industry leader in the medical device field and has over 30 years of experience. He works to bring brand new therapies to the market to improve the practice of healthcare. Recently, he was named the CEO of the sur- surgical tech company Augmedics. Now, Augmedics is a new and upcoming technology that is able to combine technology to give humans a very interactive experience. Augmedics develops cutting-edge augmented reality technologies to help improve surgical incomes. And today's product, the X-Vision headset, assists surgeons in the precarious field of spine surgery. So thank you, Mr. Hikes, for joining me today. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Now, firstly, I wanted to ask a few questions about kind of the medical technology field. So what were the, some of the steps that kind of took you into this field and how did it all start? Where was the, the passion, the interest? Where did that all come from? Yeah. So thank you for asking. So I finished, uh, I was a computer science and business uh, major in undergraduate uh, studies and did some consulting work for three years, then went back to get an MBA. And I was finishing business school. I was intent on going into the technology industry in finance or marketing or ultimately management. And at that time, at least, the economy was in a bit of a slump and the tech companies were struggling. So there weren't a lot of jobs. So the next most interesting thing at the time was medical technology, which um, much of which was pioneered in my hometown of Minneapolis. So I had lots of connections and um, experience and exposure growing up. And so I took a job with a company called Medtronic, which which were the, they were the inventors of the implantable pacemaker in 1949. So one of the pioneers in medical devices and have since then spun off over 250 companies. So really sort of the, the birthplace to some degree of implantable medical devices. And I quickly found that medical devices, as opposed to technology, uh, pure technology, were particularly interesting. And it, it certainly has a heavy technical component. It has a heavy scientific and clinical component, obviously. Um, but ultimately, what made me most interested was um, to be able to work in a, in a very technology-driven field, but for the benefit of humanity. There weren't apps or, or cell phones back then, but there was lots going on in the computer industry. It was growing, exploding quickly. Um, but I found the medical device field to be to be extremely rewarding. And you know the ability to contribute to the betterment of humanity and, and to return people to full life and to work on really interesting technologies and on solving unmet medical needs and doing it around the world with really intelligent people in interesting places, that's a pretty interesting uh, combination of uh, experiences for a career. So I've you know, I left Medtronic after 17 years and have done now six startups, and I, I've had lots of chances to veer back into tech, but it's never happened because I, I think I've become, um, you know, very dependent on and appreciative of the sort of uh, the psychological benefits and, you know, the the altruism that comes with the job in this field. And I don't want to give that up. That That's sounds... Sounds like you hit the, the exact gold spot of what you're aiming to, just something to help people... Yeah. 
but utilizing technology at the same time. But I was wondering if, because you mentioned a lot about how tech brought you into this field, but was there also like a significant amount of kind of medical knowledge you needed to know before getting into this field? Or was it something that just you, that like tech was the main part of? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, if I had been in an engineering role or in a, cl a clinical role, a scientific role, yes, I would have, I would have not been a candidate for a job at Medtronic. I was instead, I was hired as a marketer, um, as a product manager and as a business person who would sort of connect the ideas and, and the clinicians and the inventors with the field. And so in that case, they were willing to take a chance on me with the with the technical background, no, no clinical background. And I was able to learn quickly enough on the job. And now over 30 years, I, I'm a curious person. I'm technically savvy. I, I fainted a lot in the first few years because I'm in the operating room all the time. So I saw a lot of crazy stuff for the first time and got a little woozy. But um, if you're a curious person, um, there's there are lots of jobs in the field that don't require necessarily a clinical background. There's tenant back tech backgrounds, business backgrounds, um, lots of different flavors of roles in these companies, and there's a lot of a lot of it you learn on the job. That sounds amazing. Now, you went you moved from Medtronic to now Augmedics as of today, and it seems like Augmedics' biggest product is the X Vision headset which sounds absolutely amazing. All of its, all of its abilities is, sounds amazing. So I wanted to ask for the viewers at home, what is the X-Vision headset and how does it work? Sure, so X-Vision, well, I'll start with Augmetics is a 10-year-old startup, an Israeli startup that's now a US-based uh, kind of commercial stage company, about 120 employees based in Chicago. Uh, and in, in Haifa, Israel, where we have about 65 uh, engineers and technical support people. I should stop and say, obviously, with the events of the last week, there's tremendous concern for their safety. And we're all hoping and praying for our team in Israel and all the other people involved in that conflict for their safety. So um, it's been a rough week for all of us. I but totally agree. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. We have a power. I pray for them as well. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, you know, it's a it's a team that have developed the first of its kind in the world augmented reality surgical navigation system. So it was developed over the course of seven years. Uh, it was based initially on um, insights from the heads up displays that the helicopter pilots wear in the Israel Defense Forces. Um, and, and it was adapted then and optimized and custom built for use in surgery. And so it was approved by the FDA in uh, June of 2020, effectively. I think it was approved in just before the pandemic, but the first use in the United States was in June of 2020. And it's been commercially available since that time. And what it does effectively, the, the principle of surgical navigation is not a new one. That was invented in 1996 by Medtronic. And it was the process of using uh, stereotactic coordinates to understand the precise location of a surgical instrument relative to a patient. And the concept was a breakthrough concept at the time, but the systems that have existed until Augmetics were somewhat complicated to use. And, and it's clear that using these systems results in much more 
accurate surgery and far less radiation for the, the physician or the patient who are in the operating room with, with x-ray machines that are used during the procedure. And it also allows surgeons to perform much more minimally invasive procedures. But those benefits were not, in many surgeons' minds, were not worth, worth the cost um, and the hassle factor involved with these systems. And these systems required a physician to look away from the patients, from the surgical field, at a pair of screens across the room, and to try to build in their minds a three-dimensional image of the patient's anatomy on the basis of the two-dimensional images they saw across the room. And as you can imagine, the, the attention deficit, the fatigue that comes with being focused on a patient's spine and having sharp instruments on their spine and having to look away every 10 seconds for 15 minutes, that's extremely stressful. And often it causes fatigue and it causes distraction and it causes inaccuracy. Every time you look away from the surgical field, things can change and shift. And so the augmentic system was the first of its kind to allow a physician to, to stay focused on the surgical site and to actually see the patient's CT image and a three-dimensional rendering of their spine precisely aligned with the patient's body. So effectively, it's X-ray vision. That's why we call it X-vision. And a physician, whether they're doing an open procedure where they can see the top of the spine and all the muscles and the blood and the surgical site, or they're doing a minimally invasive procedure through tiny bowls, it's equally useful because it allows them to effectively see the patient's spine in three dimensions perfectly superimposed on the patient's body and to not have to look away um, to do the surgery accurately. That sounds amazing. And I bet for all of the surgeons that have tried this out, it's definitely a big relief. Instead of having to, like you said, look at those screens every 10 seconds, it's just much more efficient and reliable for them. Yeah. Some of the surgeons describe the, the, the current, the legacy systems of which there are three or four in the market. Um, they describe using those systems a little bit like trying to hang a picture of the wall while looking at a totally different place. So you're sort of hammering here, looking the other way. And I didn't mention it, but there are the legacy systems have cameras overhead that track the physician's position, the patient's position, and the position of all the tools that are being used. And so you cannot block the line of sight of those cameras or the whole surgical navigation process stops. And the problem is, there are people moving in and out of the surgical field. There's a scrub nurse. There's an assisting physician. They're handing in instruments and tools. So very frequently, the line of sight is, in fact, interrupted. And so the, the, the navigation process stops. So not only are they pounding a nail in a wall while looking across the street, they're having to contort their body to make sure that they're not accidentally blocking any of the cameras that are watching their position. So it's, it's inelegant. There's benefit, but many physicians have concluded that the benefits were not worth the costs and the impact on how they operate until augmentics. And for that reason, these navigation systems are only used today in one out of five surgeries. They're otherwise done, they call it freehand. So they sort of use x-rays and they, they, they would understand the position of the spine and they put screws into the spine based on their training and the best view they can get from an X-ray image, so that is suboptimal, um, but it works. But it, it could be better. 
it sounds almost i think the analogy you used of trying to hammer a picture on the wall while looking away is also the perfect way to, to really talk about how risky spine surgery is it's i think one of the most dangerous types of surgeries because it deals with all the nerves on your back and it, it's really quite dangerous and like like that painting one shot and you might just break the painting so yes, or hit your thumb <laughs> or do that as well yes so patience yeah 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 so you mentioned it at like every one out of all five surgeries use the x-vision headset so i was wondering if out of the surgeons that have tried this out kind of used it i think for a few years now as you said it was made uh available in 2020 as lots of surgeons have started to use this product, do they feel like, from a surgeon's perspective, do they feel like the augmented reality technology is helping them more? Or do they still, do some still prefer the old school method of looking back at the screen every 10 seconds? Yeah, so I would say that's a great question. Uh, it, it, the answer is it sort of depends. And, and I should be clear, the traditional navigation systems uh, the looking across the street while hammering the, the nail, those are used Those are used in one out of five surgeries. So our goal is to significantly improve the user experience in such a way that, the, that navigation is used much more than one out of five. So we're, that's the paradigm we're actually trying to change and trying to create a system that is so easy to use and intuitive and technically elegant that the cost of you know, the benefits of navigation are clear, but the cost in hassle factor had been very, very high. So if we can bring that hassle factor down and create something that's natural and intuitive, then we think many, many more patients will benefit from more accurate surgery, less radiation, minimally invasive procedures, et cetera. So I guess what I would say, spine surgery is somewhat unique. And as you point out, it is a very complex and can be dangerous surgery. Certainly, the, the complications of spine surgery are severe uh, and life-changing. Um, that being said, among surgeries, it is also one of the more, um, there is no real standard of care for spine surgery. So surgeons, spine surgeons, whether they're orthopedic spine surgeons or neurosurgeons, both specialties do spine work, they, they, ha they each have their own approach to a particular procedure. There's no one way to do a single level fusion, for example. And each surgeon will do it as they were trained and as they see fit and based on their sense of the best procedure for the patients. But there are there are five or six or seven different ways to fuse two vertebrae in terms of the tools you use, the implants you use to fix the vertebrae, the approach you take from the front, from the, the oblique, from the lateral, from the rear. So there's no real standardization in spine. So surgeons, have you know their own sense of what they're willing to do to achieve the result. So some surgeons are fiercely protective of their recipe, of their approach, or what they call their workflow. So they're less open to using a tool like augmented reality or navigation to achieve a certain result. They're confident that they can do that well enough with a freehand approach or with whatever they're using in their operating room. Other surgeons are more open-minded perhaps or flexible or more willing to integrate new and different approaches and new and different technology into their workflow. 
So it just, it's probably not unusual. It's human nature. It's more prevalent in spine than other surgical fields, than most other surgical fields. So it sort of depends. But what's interesting is that we're finding, you know, clearly the early career surgeons who are, as a surgeon, and entering clinical practice in their mid-30s, they've grown up with technology and they've grown up with gaming and, and augmented reality and, and virtual reality in some cases. Their learning curve uh, is almost immediate and their acceptance of technology and it, they're, they're willing to embrace technology and to apply it quickly in what they're doing um, because they're comfortable with it. Um, as you can imagine, people that are my age that have been practicing and doing spine surgery for 20 years, um, some of them aren't as comfortable or interested in tech. And so some of it is, is sort of age and stage related. Some of it has to do with whether you're an academic and you have a little more time in a, in a teaching hospital and you're trying to teach people what to do, or you're a private practice physician and you're perhaps more focused on efficiency and speed. It just sort of depends. But we're surprised at the number of later career surgeons who are in fact adopting our technology, who have never chose to navigate after 26 years. They've been spine surgeons for 20 years. They've had navigation sometimes in the corner of the operating room, but they've never turned it on because they didn't think it was worth it. And when we've introduced our technology to them, they've said, even though I plan to retire in a year or two, I want to plan this. I think this can add value and safety and improve outcomes for my patients. So it's easy enough that even the, the old guard who probably was interested in tech are able and willing and adopting the technology. And that's very gratifying. Yeah, I, I would... I would agree almost listening to this it saw I would also feel the same because there's always that sort of stigma that as a person gets aged they kind of stray away from technology and that's almost a stigma you not only see in the medical technology field you see that in any sort of other technology whether it be smartphones or you know cars TVs anything that's almost a stigma that lures around so it's really nice to hear that some older surgeons are willing to try this out, try out a new technology. And I think it's nice to hear that they're actually, they're valuing this new adaptation and they really believe it's the future. Now, yes. I wanted to also talk about, I think because surgeons have been already using this and it's been more useful than the old method. What were some of the challenges that you faced to kind of, or the company engineers, anyone that actually faced to bring this technology to the operating room? Because I don't doubt that a technology like this at first might have had some odd glances. Yeah. So um, that's a great question. You know, overall, you know, medical devices, there's a, there's an expression. I think it's very accurate. You know, Pharmaceuticals are often developed over the course of eight to 10 years in the laboratory before they ever make it to the, to the patient, to the bedside or clinic. Whereas medical devices, they, they describe it as, as sort of the bench or the lab to the bedside, then back to the bench for further improvement, then back to the bedside. So it's a much more iterative process. So a pharmaceutical, you often have to develop 10 pharmaceuticals each for 10 years to get one winner that ever makes it to the clinic. With medical devices, you're often iterating in real time with physicians in the animal lab, in cadaver labs, in the operating room. So you obviously have to follow 
strict regulatory requirements, and there are there are laws that govern how you test devices in humans, obviously, but it's a very iterative process. So like any medical device that I've worked on over 30 years, this one is extremely technically complex um, in terms of optics and augmented reality and software and hardware. So it's, it's more digital than many, but nonetheless, there were, there were multiple iterations of the system and improvements that were made and then tested on animals, tested on cadavers, uh, tested in humans for accuracy. And then the, the engineers would improve upon, based on the feedback, they would improve upon the system and, and bring a new version of it to market. They would test that. So it's a, it's a very much in a very typical technical process over many years to reach a point where you have a fully functioning, stable system with proven, predictable outcomes. So that is no different whether it be a pacemaker or an interventional catheter or a system like ours. It's really almost a medical device meets digital health platform, right? It's a little bit on the fringe of where technology, pure technology and medical devices meet. So that would be one very typical, and it was a very necessary process to bring this technology forward to understand how to configure it, how to stabilize it, how to deal with different use cases, how to understand how to navigate and recognize any instrument that a physician may choose to use. So those are all typical sort of ways to understand what the market needs, what the clinicians need, and how to and, and build that into the product. So that's one sort of set of challenges. The other set of challenges was understanding how to safely and effectively introduce it to the market. So we're sold and approved today only in the United States. It was a decision for now. And so, you know, hiring a team of experts and clinically um, experienced field personnel to be in the operating room. Our personnel are in every single operating room in which our system is used in a single case. So hiring and training a team to do that work, to do it safely, to be responsive to the physicians, obviously to, to help them understand why they should use our system, that's a, a, a great big effort unto itself. That's sort of what they call the go-to-market strategy, right? How do you introduce technology once it's developed into the commercial realm and to do it safely? You know, the third challenge, which is also very typical for startups at least, is finding the money that allows you to do all these things, right? So that that's the CEO's job and the CFO's job. And so that's a nonstop job. It ebbs and flows, but you're always thinking about how you, uh, how you access capital, to allow yourself to hire more engineers and run more labs and invest in technology and invest in field teams. So um, it's not just the technology and lots of really good technologies never make it because the companies can't understand how to, how to commercialize it or they can't as a startup, at least they can't find the capital they need to do that. It's very expensive. So lots of sort of different challenges and they all need to go well for something, for an interesting technology to ever help a patient. That's interesting, actually, because you stated like commercialization was a big process, which makes me think like, what are all what could have been the thousands of technologies that just failed to commercialize and be brought to the market? Which brings me sadly to uh, my last question. Um, you talked to the the failure of commercialization obviously doesn't bring like lots of technologies, so. What do you think in the future that the medical world will adapt to 
And what are the technologies that could come from the future adaptations in the me medical world? Yeah. So, you know, I think the pace of innovation is accelerating. And that sounds a little bit cliche, but but the speed with which the regulatory processes are not accelerating. It still takes many, many years and a significant amount of capital to get a device approved in this country by the FDA so that you can use it safely in the patient. And many devices take six to seven years of clinical trials, which could cost 30 to $50 million at least, just to get to the point where you ask the FDA to approve it. So the the processes are rigorous. They have to be, and they're not accelerating. But the technology itself, it, 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 if you simply look at AR or VR or AI, you know, it's remarkable how quickly some of these new technologies are being implemented and how we're adapting. Um, a 20, For example, 26-year-old navigation concept, we're now applying AI and AR to make it much, much more effective and much more usable. Right. So, you know, in, in my field, there's a lot of digital transformation um, that is significantly affecting what we can do, the kinds of tools we can deliver. And, you know, again, in our field, there's a lot of talk about whether you could ultimately get to a point where with AI, you could provide real time decision support for a surgeon where a system could look at, at, a, at a CT image in a surgical site and say, you know, move left or watch out for that nerve that you can't see, but I'm going to highlight it with a certain color. And I'm going to guide you in doing a procedure based on an understanding of outcomes. I, you know, for example, in machine learning, teach it, you know, 10,000 surgical procedures and how they went, what went well, what, what did not go well, and help a physician access that data as they're operating to make decisions in real time to have the most successful procedure possible. So, you know, huge potential to leverage data and, and digital science and AI um, to improve decision-making in medicine. So that, that's, you know, that's one of many corners where things are accelerating, um, but it's, it's, it's an exciting one. And I, you know, I have to say after spending um, probably the first 28 years or the first 26 years, at least in pure medical devices, as to have been digital or, or devices that rely heavily on digital data and it's a really interesting sort of frontier where the two are, those two fields are increasingly meeting and it's creating great opportunity and hopefully creating even more opportunity to help patients and to improve surgical outcomes and, and health overall. Now, it sounds like your next endeavor at Augmedics seems to be directing to AI. Well, we're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> we have... 10 times more good ideas than we can ever possibly afford to develop, which is a nice problem to have. Yeah, it's always nice to have more more ideas than failures. So, well, I wanted to lastly thank you, Mr. Hikes, for coming on the show today. And I think you really opened up the world about medical technology, which is a field that is often overlooked. Not many people know about the medical technology field and it's often hidden well. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome, Harash. It's nice to be here. Good luck. Thank you.